Well, last week we began a look into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and started back up our jog through the, the letter to the Corinthian church. You'll remember again that the lens that we're using to look at 1 Corinthians is that of Romans 12 two. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And it's as if Paul has taken that verse and in the life of the Corinthian church given us all these different instances to consider. Now, the challenge that we have faced is how do we do that in such a manner that doesn't get caught up in the Corinthian problems? The way Paul addresses the Corinthian problems are instances, case studies, if you will, for us to look at and then think, okay, how do we apply what he says in that case to what we're doing in our case, in our time? And in our day? some days, some things, they come right over. Some things, it's, it's not a problem. Other things are a little more challenging. We looked at one of those last week, the issue of head coverings, whether it's wearing our hair a certain way that gives off a cultural message or leaving our heads literally uncovered with a hat or something that gives a cultural message. How do we apply that over to our cultural moment? What is Paul really getting at in that text? So we continue now. Paul is in the midst of some pretty stern words. He's he has sternly rebuked uh, the Corinthians on this issue, as we said last week, of, of erasing or potentially trying to erase the distinctions between their men and their women in such a way that loses the glory of God in the glory of man and woman. That as the two in their distinctiveness from one another find a compatibility that works together to demonstrate the glory of God. And if we seek to erase that, Paul is saying, if, if we, even in a cultural way, communicate to the world, yeah, we're fine with erasing that. We have, we have, done, we have, we have slighted uh, the glory of God by attacking the image of God, that is man, mankind. So he's, 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 he's coming down pretty hard on them on that issue. Now he turns to another issue, and that is, how they conduct themselves at the Lord's Supper. And he is concerned about their worship, and he is concerned about the way they handle the Eucharist. We're going to talk about that particularly next week. But what he leads into this discussion on the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper about is their issue of uh, division within the church, their unity or lack thereof in the church. And we know this is very important to Paul because the whole next chapter, if you will, uh, you can look over there in chapter 12, spiritual gifts, unity and diversity in the next heading, unity and diversity in the body. I mean, so we're going to get a whole chapter in chapter 12 on the unity of the body of Christ. And Paul is now leading into that. And he takes up the issue of their public worship and particularly the way that they are coming to the Lord's Supper together as a body. Now, as we, as we think about this and launch in, the text has already been read in our word of exhortation today, but as we launch into this, I think it's worth us remembering that what we're dealing with here, just like Paul in last week's text, issue of gender distinctiveness, says this is not just a mere cultural phenomenon. Something is being attacked here that goes right back to the deepest levels, namely the glory of God. Well, here too, when we talk about unity and, and division, potential divisions within the church, we are dealing with something that goes right to the heart 
of the kingdom of God. Because you will remember, we could have, there's a lot of texts we could have read today, but one of them would have been Jesus' prayer in John 17. Maybe we'll read it next week. But in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, this is Jesus while he's sweating drops of blood. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Jesus on the night in which he's about to be arrested. It is that deepest darkness, darkness that no one in the world has ever known. We're talking about soul-crushing darkness. In that moment, Jesus is praying. And in that prayer, Jesus prays for unity in his church. I find this so compelling. I, 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 I have I've talked to you about it before. So it's not those of you who've been in this church uh, have, have, not, uh, uh, have not failed to hear this before. Namely that Jesus in that moment of utter crisis, the depth of the anxiety and angst that he's going through, whatever you pray for in a time of great crisis gets to something pretty important, right? Because all what, what trials and tribulation and angst and fear and all this stuff does is it burns off all the dross. It gets rid of all the insignificant things of life, right? When you're in real crisis and you go and pray, you're, you're like, your, your focus zooms in on something that is of the utmost importance to you in that moment. And when we have Jesus in a moment in which he's in soul-crushing literally crushing his body so that it is like in a, in a grape press, uh, uh, it, it, you know, uh, a wine press, blood is literally coming out of him. What does he pray for? Whatever that is, tells you what's pretty important to him. He's not praying for trivialities. But what does he pray for in that moment? He prays for his disciples. He prays for those who will come to know him through the disciples that he prays for you and for me. And he prays that we be one. And he says, Father, I pray that they would be one. Even as you and I are one, may they be one. So that the world may know that you sent me. This is his prayer. As he goes to the cross. Therefore, unity within the church. Unity within this little church. And unity between this church and other churches of like faith is not on the periphery. Like, hey, what we're really here to do is get our souls right with Jesus. And that's all we really got to care about. Am I right with God? Right? We're not in here as little individual self-contained units. And what we're all here to do individually, and we just happen to come together because it's a convenient or not so convenient place to gather for worship, that we'll all just come here so we can get right with God. We all walk out here going, yep, I've confessed my sins. Yep, I'm right with God. Okay, I've said hi to a couple people and now I go home. But what I'm really here to do is something individual between me and God. And if we can have unity in the church and if we can get along and if we can be brothers and sisters and be a community, then that's great. But that's not what I'm here for. What I'm here for is to get right with God. If that's our mindset, it's of the devil. It's of the devil. Jesus puts unity within the church at the very center of his prayers. He wants his church to be one. We are a body after all, made up as we're going to see in, in the next couple weeks of distinct parts, distinct roles, different characters within this body, but we are a body. 
And therefore, unity is something that we must guard, we must pray for, we must pursue here at Affirmation. But then also, again, we've got to be careful that we don't view this church as a little self-contained unit. We're part of a bigger body. We're part of a story. We're part of a kingdom and a people. We've got to care about that. So when he comes and begins to challenge them on divisions in the church, this is not a little side thing. Like, hey, guys, this would really be great if you can clean this up. It's something that goes right to the heart of the thing. And he brings it to the Eucharist, to the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper, after all, is called communion. Communion. Two worlds brought together. Multiple worlds, multiple lives brought together in fellowship. That's what we're doing as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We are all eating of one loaf. We're sharing. We're one family. We're one body in Christ. And to have divisions while you're taking the Lord's Supper is almost blasphemy. It's almost blasphemy. It's contradicting with our actions what we're doing in our lives. So that's what Paul addresses now. So he starts out by by addressing the divisions here in general, and then he's going to go specifically the fact that this is happening at the Lord's Supper. But verses 17 to 19, now, giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Right? Again, we're not just coming together so we can individually sit here and be in our own portals and get right with God. We're coming together as a body. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized by you. Okay, so the Corinthian church is being marked out by its factions. There's still these factions. You talk about not being conformed to the pattern of this world. What the Corinthians are doing is using the same things that divide us out there. Issues of class. Issues of race. And they're finding their way into the church, into the Corinthian church, where all of a sudden, the poor are over there, the wealthy are over here, the people with titles are being acknowledged, the people who don't are not being acknowledged. We're going to see that. The poor are showing up late because they're having to work for the meals, you know, uh, to come to the, 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 the Lord's Supper, which in this case, in the Corinthian church and in some early churches, was, separate, was celebrated distinctly from the worship service per se. So you might have the worship service, and then afterwards you might have a fellowship meal, and part of that would include the, the Lord's Supper. So it's just done as a distinct uh, thing, a distinct service. But the poor are, are you know, are the, the ones who are working. Some of them are slaves uh, in the Roman sense. They're showing up to worship late, and when they get there, they're not being treated equally. They're not welcomed as brothers. In fact, some of them are getting there, and there's no food left, <laughs> you know? There's literally no wine left. Even for them to partake of the Lord's Supper, they can't partake of that. So we've got these classes and distinctions that kind of work out there. It's how the Corinthian life works. But you Corinthians are dragging that into the church and you're bringing the same distinctions in here. Now we know if, if we could have read the book of James, James deals with this. You know, hey, what are you doing when, when a poor man comes in and you go, ah, sit wherever you want. You know, but then a rich man comes, you go, oh, hey, hey, we got a seat right up here. You know, the prize seat, come up here. And, and you, you take care of the one who comes in with a title. You take care of the one that comes in with the money. But the poor, well, if we don't have room, just stand back there. 
So this was a problem not just in Corinth. It was a problem in the world. It's a problem we all struggle with. Right? We allow the distinctions of the world, the celebrity of the world, the status of the world, the identifying marks of the world to become the ways in which we judge one another, rank one another, distinguish one another. And Paul rebukes them. And he does this in other letters and other ways. Right When he says there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. What, what is he getting at? Is he, 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 there's literally not slaves or free people. There's literally, we just said the distinction between men and women is, is of the utmost importance and Paul just blanks it out. There's neither male nor female. That, we, we know what he means by this. Of course, these are real distinctions. There are socioeconomic distinctions. There are gender distinctions. There are ethnic distinctions. Yes, we know there are Jews and we know that there are Gentiles. Yes, we understand that. But in Christ, in Christ, those distinctions kind of melt away. It's not that there's not roles in society. Of course there are. But in Christ, I don't look at you as a Jew or a Gentile. I don't look at you as a male or a female. I don't look at you as a slave or a noble. I look at you as a brother or a sister in Christ. And that kind of radical unity, which is just utterly missing, right? You talk about being, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. right? I, I ask my students all the time, what does it mean to be, what does salt do? Okay, it preserves and it flavors. And so we think about, okay, let's take up either of these. What, what, in what ways does the church preserve? In which way should the church flavor? And I ask them, what flavors do you think the Christian church brings to a bland world? That without the church there, it's not there. And here would be one of them. This kind of loving unity that transcends the distinctions and divisions of our society, which sees neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but loves one another as brothers and sisters, is a flavor that you just do not find in the world. And that's why Jesus says, by their unity, the world will know that you sent me. What else could bring this kind of unity? What, what, what else could bring this kind of flavor except that salt shaker, you know? And so unity within the church, again, strikes at the very heart. And Paul is scandalized. He's upset. He's angered over the fact that there are these divisions among them. Now, where are these divisions coming together? And this is where it's even, it takes the offense and then, and then squares it. <laughs> because it's happening of all places at the Lord's table. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, you, you're saying that's why you're gathering. We're gathering to eat the Lord's Supper, but, but it turns out you are not. You're doing something else. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. So here now, they're coming to this meal, this fellowship meal, in which is also being given the Lord's Supper. And people are pounding the food. They're eating all the bread. They're getting drunk on the wine. That's how much they're drinking. Then others show up, or when it gets passed around, 
The one, you know, that feed, of course, you feed the wealthy first. Of course, you take care of the ones who have the names, the ones who are actually supporting the church with their giving. You make sure that they get taken care of. Okay, here we've got the, the poor wretch over here who, who is not doing any of those things, who is dressed so poorly, who stumbled in late because he had work, and he doesn't even get any. <laughs> That's what's happening. These guys are drunk. Now, you talk about unique things within the church. All right, marrying your stepmother, that's one of them. We thought about that a couple weeks ago. You know, lawsuits in the church, okay, head coverings. But how about getting drunk at the Lord's table? That's what these guys are doing. And it's an abomination. It's an abomination just to get drunk at the Lord's table. But even that is not what, what, what's bothering Paul about the getting drunk at the Lord's table. As bad as that is, is that you're getting drunk at their expense. You're getting drunk and your brothers haven't had any. The poor haven't had any, and the rich are acting gluttonous. And what they're doing is you are, again, you talk about being conformed to the pattern of this world. You're taking the old Corinthian ways. And remember I told you, they were at business meetings or guild meetings or whatever in these temples. And you'd feast. you big bacchanalia. And you feast and you get drunk. It's what you do with these things. And now you've brought that into the church? That's not, this is not what the Lord's Supper is. Again, you're thinking like Corinthians. You're not thinking like Christians. Now, again, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. So easy for us to go, ha, 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 oh, oh, those silly Corinthians. Oh, look how bad they were. Thank you, Lord, that you've not made me like that, man. But okay, but where, where do we drag our American thinking in? Even into the Lord's Supper, even into the fellowship of this church, we have to... We have to ask, Lord, show me ways in which I'm doing. We're not getting drunk at the Lord's table, but that doesn't mean our hearts appear on this. And maybe it is, maybe it is as subtle as just coming in with our eyes just on ourselves. So we think we're a bunch of marbles in a bag here, all coming together in one bag to do our thing before God but we're individual marbles rather than viewing ourselves as being part here as a body. And that even as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do this as a body. I don't know. I don't know where the subtleties are. But here we have a big cartoon picture of what it looks like when it goes bad and it's getting drunk at the, at the table. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each takes his own supper ahead of the others. One is hungry, one is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? This is just Paul now just rebuking them. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. You're looking for words of praise and encouragement. You're going to get none on this issue. Because what you're doing is a disgrace. You are bringing divisions into the church and it's having very practical implications working itself out even at a place of communion and fellowship and unity. Even here, you're bringing that division. And Paul rebukes them with the strongest of rebukes. Then in verse 23, he stops the rebuke and says, now let me, let me remind you of what we're doing as we come to the Lord's table. And he gives us the words of institution, which you're used to hearing me say uh, in part uh, every first Sunday of the month as we partake of the Lord's Supper. He reminds them of what is happening in the supper. And he tells them a story. Mark read to you from Luke today to, to, again, give you the story in which it took place. And Paul says this, 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you do, as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Okay, so what is Paul doing here as he brings them back to the words of institution? Well, he reminds them of a couple things. Number one, he reminds them that the bread on the table before them is the body of Christ. Now, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to spend time reflecting on this. In what ways is it the body of Christ? In what ways is it bread? How do we manage this sacramental mystery that is happening as you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, this glorious and wonderful mystery? We can very easily fall off the razor's edge on one of two sides. We can fall off on a side of, it's just bread. It's just wine. Um, it's, it's so we remember. You can fall off on that side and kind of make the Lord's Supper just a little token for your memory. And, and, I, and I think in that way, very much trivialize what's happening in the Lord's Supper. Or you can fall off on the other side. We say, well, hey, it's not bread at all. In fact, it's the body of Christ. Jesus said, this is my body. And we can end up on a more Roman Catholic view, which, which takes the, the bread and it stops being bread. And all of a sudden it is literally transubstantiated into the body of Christ. And you have things like Eucharistic adoration, where you have you know, 24 hours a day in, in churches. The, the, the host is put on a, on, a, on a stand and people come and worship it. And 24 hours a day, you come in and people are assigned time and they come in. So there's always somebody bowing before the host because that is literally, literally Christ. Okay, so so I believe both of those are errors. And so next week, we'll kind of think about how we navigate that. So we have a very high view of the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper, but in such a way that is appropriate. So we'll think about that. But, but for our discussions here today, Paul is reminding them, this is not a meal like other meals. This is not a meal you come and fill your belly with. This is a meal you come feed your soul with. You leave the Lord's Supper not with a full belly, but with a full soul. You have houses to eat in. Do you not have enough food in your pantry that you need to devour the Lord's Supper? That's not what the Lord's Supper is. So eat first at home. So you come here with a full belly so that you are not tempted to think of the Lord's Supper that way. But by all means, we'll talk about this next week, come with an empty soul. Come with a soul that is hungry, ready to be filled. And then come feast your soul upon the bounty that is provided. Don't, don't mistake when we take the Lord's Supper. Don't mistake that little piece of bread for a, a, a little pittance of food. That would be a huge mistake. That would be to judge with your eyes. That would be to think with your belly. When you look at that piece of bread, see it as something of infinite worth and substance that is feeding your soul and that is filling and satisfying your soul. That's, what's, that's what you're partaking as you partake the bread. But the Corinthians have, have gotten all bamboozled. They've got, they have just not thought through the significance of what they're doing. And so Paul reminds them, look, let me pass on to you again that which the Lord gave to me, the night in which he was betrayed. 
So again, we're back to that darkest night. We're back to that moment of absolute soul-crushing weight upon Jesus. And think about that, that as Jesus is under that, he is giving a meal to his disciples. He's loving them. We're on Passover night of all nights. Again, in the Old Testament, maybe the darkest of all nights. The night in which the angel of death was going to come kill all the firstborn. And here now is the Lamb of God himself about to go and receive the killing of the firstborn. He's about to receive the judgment that the angel of death, the wrath of God, was ultimately going to bring. And as he does, the lamb himself turns and gives his body in the symbols of bread and wine to his beloved. He says, take and eat. This is my body. The body that's about to be crushed. The body that's about to be torn into. The body that's about to be beaten and whipped. The body that's about to to sweat blood for you under the weight of the winepress of God's wrath. That body I give to you. Now, Corinthians, next time you feel like gorging yourself, remember what bread it is you're holding. This is the bread which our Lord Jesus Christ took, blessed, broke, and gave to his disciples and said, this is my body. And then, it's not just my body. This is my body which is broken for you. This isn't Paul saying this, and hey, Corinthians, it's not you. I'm not even asking you to look out for the poor. This is Jesus' body broken that he himself distributes to the poor. And to you as well. But for you then, if Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, and you get in the way, and say, well, not you. And you gobble it all down. Brother, you are in a dangerous spot of stepping before the Lord and his bride, of stepping before the Lord and the people for whom he gave his broken body. This is not just bad dinner etiquette. This is real dangerous division within the church of God at the very moment and in the very act where Christ is giving himself for the sake of his people. This is his blood, the cup of the new covenant in his blood, which he gives to his church. And then finally, down in verse 26, Paul even gives another wrinkle on this. And the last wrinkle he gives us, so, so we've got the idea of division within the church highlighted because it's at this moment where unity is to be its most literally tangible because we're all pulling from the bread and we're all equals as we come to the bread. We're all hungry in our souls and need food, right? We're all leveled out. The, the, the Lord's Supper is a leveling of the playing field, if you will, and getting in the way of what Christ is doing for his church. But then in verse 26, he gives one last little wrinkle and he says, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Remember in the beginning I said to you that when Jesus prayed for unity, it wasn't just some sort of sentimental unity. It was where he's praying for unity because that's what the church is. It is the body of Christ. It must be one. It, it can't be. If a body is divided, that's a bad thing. We see it in the Lord's Supper. His body is broken so that his body can be united. 
shame on us then when the body says, no, we'll be divided too. No, it's not the way it's meant to be. But remember that when he prayed for that unity of the church, it was missional. He said, Father, may they be one as you and I are one that the world might know that you sent me. The unity of the church is prophetic. It speaks to the nations and beckons them to come and be part of it in Christ. Well, the same is true of our unity in the supper. That as we come together and we eat and we drink, we eat the bread and we drink the cup, it is prophetic. And therefore we ought to be, just like I have to be careful standing up here and speaking in such a manner that misrepresents the Lord. Because I, if you will, stand as a, in the, in the, not in the place of the Lord, you understand, but, but commissioned by the Lord to speak his word as a pastor. Well, in partaking of the Eucharist, we as the body of Christ are doing that. We are proclaiming to the world, to one another, to the principalities and powers, but to the world, the Lord's death until he comes. This is what his death has done. It has brought together this kind of unity. And here we see what the death of the Lord is for us. It's our food for our souls, our food and our drink. And therefore Paul says, you, you mess with that. You get in the way of that proclamation. And then by your very actions, you're false prophets. When there's division among you as you're partaking of the supper, you become false prophets. Your message becomes blasphemy because you're saying one thing with your actions and another one with your words. And we as the people of God are to bring a true body of Christ unity together as we come to the Lord's Supper. And then watch as the Lord's Supper actually, actually breeds more unity. It does the work within us as well. Well, next week we will take up the issue of what's happening in the Lord's Supper. But for us, it's a reminder this morning to prioritize our membership within the body and our desire for the unity of the body in as much as we see it in the Lord's Supper, but in the body as a whole. And may, may that be our prayer for us at Affirmation. May we seek practical ways in which we can do it for one another. Because here, again, this is why we talked about being members of a church is important. Because here you have a practical place you can do it. I can't affect the unity of the, you know, the one holy Catholic apostolic church. I, very little I can do to affect that. But I can do it here. Here's where we can do it. Here's where we can actually lay our lives down for one another. Here's where we can actually love in very practical and tangible ways one another. And so doing, participate in the unified life of the church as a whole. Well, may that be our prayer and our desire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who loved his church to such an extent that even on the night in which he is betrayed, the darkest night that the history of the world has ever known, he nonetheless took bread and broke it and took wine and poured it and gave it to his church, gave it to his disciples and gave them a token, a meal, a sacrament by which they might remember and participate in his very love for his church. So we thank you for that. And we pray that you would forgive us as individuals and as a church for any way in which we, by our actions, have denied or contradicted that message. 
And we pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you would draw us together in a deep, soul-knitted unity. That by our unity, here at Affirmation, the world might know that you sent Christ. May there be a flavor in this church that is foreign to the tongues of our neighbors. That they might see in us, hear in us, taste in us, Father, the love, the unifying love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make that true in us, we pray, and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.